these children were, you know, neglected. Like, they're not enough staff, not trained, and all of these kids, you know, 98% of them have disabilities. They're not actual orphans, you know. They have parents, but their parents didn't feel able. And a lot of pressure from a lot of different parts of society and from government and culture and heritage, making them not only feel inadequate or unable to raise their children, but to, to genuinely, in a lot of cases, think that the state could do a better job. And so they've given their kids up with these disabilities, but the people they've been entrusted to have no training in disability. And the ideal is a silent space. If kids are seen to be crying, they're seen to be doing the wrong thing. But I mean, what we know is kids cry to communicate and if you don't respond or aren't attuned to that, they, they stop. Hi, Mark Peterson here on the Heart of Mission podcast. Today, we're thinking a little bit about some of the most vulnerable people in the world, children with disabilities in orphanages. The episode, though, is not just for people with bleeding hearts. This is for followers of Jesus who hear his words about the vulnerable and the outcast and are jolted into action, like T. We'll hear more from her in a moment. There's this great passage in Luke chapter 14 in the Bible about outcasts. Jesus has received an invitation to be a special guest at the house of a prominent, upstanding religious person. But as he sees all these supposedly good people around him jostling for greatness, he has some rather uncomfortable words to say to his host. Jesus says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I reckon that would have been a bit of a mic drop moment. Today we meet T, who headed to Asia nearly 20 years ago now to work with orphans with disabilities. Her journey to mission began even before she was a Christian, as we'll hear, and it has involved getting married and having kids along the way, and more recently, a COVID-induced hiatus from her ministry location, during which time she's found other ways to work with the vulnerable on behalf of Jesus here in Australia. But there's so much to learn from T about the journey she's been on. As she and her husband have been praying for the door to be open for them to return to the work they've been doing overseas, She's had a constant sense that God's work for them in Asia is not yet finished. She has a great story to tell. Parts of this are not comfortable to hear. But for those of us who are so wealthy, so abundantly provided for, not just materially, but also emotionally and spiritually, perhaps this is an important and timely challenge. Let's meet T. Countless souls around the world who do not know Jesus and can't easily access the gospel. This is the heart of mission. What small role can you play in God's big world? Missionaries, cross-cultural specialists, pastors, their stories and perspectives can really help us. Thanks for joining us. Grab a cuppa and strap in as we demystify, decode, and de-stress the great challenges of cross-cultural mission. Welcome to the Heart of Mission podcast, T. It's fabulous to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been a worker with CMS for some time now in Asia, but just want to wind back to right back in the beginning, even before you became a Christian, you actually had an interest in the orphans of Asia. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people, becoming a Christian can be a a long process. So as a teenager, I was certainly around other Christians and had understanding of who Jesus is. But yeah, before really jumping in boots and all, I was involved with World Vision, an organisation I'm sure lots of people have heard of. And they used to do sort of information nights. And I was researching for one of those and came across Um, a region in Asia that had policies that meant that um, baby girls were being abandoned um, just because they were female. And for me, that was really striking and just seemed really wrong. My heart was really moved for that. And I 
I guess I wanted to let those baby girls know that they were loved and that they were precious. And so I had in my head that I would like to to go one day and to let those um, babies know that they they were loved. So yeah, that was really before I realised that the most important thing was for anyone to know that they're loved by God. And so when I did become a Christian and, and really realised that life is either all for God or or not at all, like you can't, you can't fool him. So either boots in or, or don't bother sort of thing. I realised actually that the most important thing for, for those babies and for anyone is to know that God loves them, not just that, that me, um, T, loves them, nicely that may be. Um, the more important thing is that they know God loves them. So yeah, those two things came together. So tell us about that process then. You've already indicated that it was a, a, a journey, you coming to understand the love of God. What, what did that look like? Yeah, I think I had had that message preached clearly to me and I had understood that, but I think it was more that idea that I could play games with God, that I professed that he sent his son Jesus to die and then choose to live my life and have my priorities as I as I wanted and to kind of fit God in around that. To be honest, the big challenge that came to me was at the end of year 12, um, when I was away on schoolies and had maybe made some choices that were not quite as um, overtly Christian as one might like. And uh, a school friend really challenged me on that. She herself had had too much to drink and was emboldened to um, accuse me of my hypocrisy. And um, yeah, in a funny turn of events that, you know, I was warned don't come back. So-and-so is looking for you. She's really angry. And in the end, you know, snuck in around the back with a couple of my mates and she found me. And just started saying, you know, you say, you say you're a Christian, but then you go and do this and you go and do that. And my other friend stood up and started yelling back at her, you know, no, T's the best Christian I've ever met. She really cares about people. She loves people. And I was sort of sat in the middle going, oh my goodness, the person I want to be wrong is totally right. The person I want to be right is completely wrong. And I think in that moment, I realized, yeah, it was all or nothing that you either that God either is who he says he is and you respond with integrity and a, and a whole heart and whole life or he's not. Yeah. So how did that change things for you then? I mean, I guess lifestyle, some things, but also your perspective, did that change or, or was it a sense of it kind of making sense of perspective you already had? Tell us about that. Yeah, I think it just, I, I am a passionate person. I'm an enthusiastic person. If I'm going to do something, it's worth doing. So I don't, I don't think it would be right to say that in that moment, my entire character or perspective or attitude towards life changed. I think what happened was I realized that those things about me that are strengths and weaknesses are from God. And that if he's the giver of life, then, and the giver of those things, then those things should be directed back to him and used for his glory. And so in whatever feeble way I can do that, then that needs to be my priority. And that can look very different for different people. But for me, having my life be, sorry, having my life be all about the gospel is a lot easier in my mind and my heart to not have a gap between those two things. So for the last few years, working in a secular job, I find that really challenging. I think there's unique challenges to that and attention for me in wanting to be wholehearted and in believing that the most important thing for people is to know Jesus, but not being able to live that or share that is a challenge. Which interestingly, you know, where we live in Asia, it's not like you can declare from the rooftops that Jesus is Lord, but yeah, I don't know. I think I, I don't feel that dissonance that I think is a real challenge here in Australia. So uh, take us back to when you first started thinking about being a, a missionary, a, a gospel worker for Christ overseas. Uh, tell us, how did you come to that decision to do that? Yeah, so I guess that interest in Asia, that interest in children and disadvantage, and I, I, I think it just was a real natural fit then to when you realise that God made each of those children and he has a purpose for them and he they're on this planet for a reason then 
those two things just really came together for me. I had a really great time at university, but all of the time in the back of my mind was, would that be possible? Would that be a pathway that I could find? And what would that look like? You know, I was involved in student ministry for a few years and then went to Bible college. And I guess when I chose where to go for Bible college, part of that was thinking one day I'd like to go overseas. And so how would I cope wrenching myself out of my family and friends and my networks? Could I do that? I'm a very sociable person. What would that look like? How would I go? And and Bible college was a real challenge, um, especially that first year, to feel like all of those people that reinforce and reflect back to you who you are and how you fit in the world, to have them all go, that can be exciting to discover new parts of yourself and everything, but it's also very disorientating. But I think that was a, that was a really helpful process to then go to Asia and to go through that again and to know that even when that was really devastatingly lonely and hard, that I could do that, that I had gone through that process, that God had been faithful, that he had provided, and that there was that deep resilience in his word and, and through his spirit to, to create again, to discover who I am, to build relationships. Yeah. And, and all of that. So then, yeah. So in answer to your question, sorry, got to Bible college. There were other people interested in working in Asia, joined a prayer group, praying regularly. One of those people don't know if I can say their name, but Paul had connections in Asia and organised a, a short-term mission exposure trip to see what the opportunities were there and what they were like. So went on that, had some incredibly hilarious times, but also very difficult times. And I guess in the hardest of those moments thinking, if I can survive this, then yes, maybe this is something I could do. This is something maybe God has fitted me out to do and I could thrive in that in that place. And so came back quietly excited. But, you know, I mean, looking the way I do and being the kind of person that I am, I'm aware that I come across as, I don't know, possibly, possibly enthusiastic about whatever idea is in front of me as opposed to necessarily staying the course on something. And so, and, and yeah, looking the way I do, it, it, I don't necessarily seem like the most natural fit for Asia. And so I think just puddling away on that. But thankfully, I think Paul had confidence in me. I don't know why, but he he kept the conversation going. And then we had someone from the organisation come out to to Sydney where we were studying. And I remember going on a walk with him one day and he was like, well, look, you know, I think you could do great stuff. We'd love to have you. Are you going to come? And in my head, I just thought, why not? Like, why not? And I guess in that moment too, I knew the reality was the only reason I wouldn't go was I was single, you know, was I going to be stepping into a life of singleness? And I think I, I just knew in that moment that I could not stand before Jesus and go, I'm sorry, I would have gone, but, but I, I thought maybe having a husband was more important. <laughs> so I think just in that moment, just the, the pure simplicity of why not, and also that crushing awareness of having to face Jesus one day and show him the choices I've made. Which... Especially knowing what he's put on your heart in terms of this concern for these orphans of Asia. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, by that time, that had already been going for six, seven years. And so you get to that point where you go, well, are you all talk or are you going to do that? And I think that's a, that's a theme that recurs throughout my, my journey is integrity. So you had a, you had the the I guess the sense of these young people who needed to to know the love of Christ. You'd you'd kind of found a journey and you you worked out a way to get across and you land and you you think right where are the orphans? How am I going to? I assume you didn't have to look look far. There were there were orphanages and one orphanage in particular that you became connected with. How long did it take to become connected with that orphanage? And and who are some of the key people that you? You, you don't necessarily need to name them, but what were some of the key relationships and conversations you had that helped you sort of find yourself that the work that you ended up doing in that orphanage? Yeah. So, I mean, funnily enough, by the time I finally got there, orphanages were completely closed to foreigners. And I was, you know, told straight out, you, you know, 
It's great you're here. Thanks for joining the team. You won't be able to go to an orphanage <laughs> um, even to visit. And so, you know, prayerfully thinking, right, what else could I do? There's a camps ministry that was just starting up then. That might have been an option. But the one of the real strengths of the organisation we work with is it at least at any one time, it at least 50% local staff. And that meant that we had in particular um, by IE, uh a local person, she had a heart for the orphans and had been visiting for a, over a decade. She was a faithful Christian lady who, yeah, just was visiting and doing what she could and, and taking um, in different supplies and cuddling and singing and all of that sort of stuff. After about six months, you know, she knew there was, there was myself and there were a couple of other people who were really keen. This was a a ministry that we all had on our heart and lots of people had been praying for the doors to open for many, many years before I'd even applied with the organisation. So I stepped into, I stepped into a river of, of prayer and of desire and of momentum that was far beyond just myself. But in God's kindness and goodness, I got to be a part of the breaking of that dam. And I think that you know, that's incredibly humbling and exciting to be a part of. So we started visiting just weekly. We had to be very respectful, very meagre in our expectations. And I think for someone who, you know, dreams big, big and wants to jump in and, and go boots and all, that was a really precious process to go through and, and a good humbling process to go through to really always be questioning, why am I here? Why do I want to do this? What's this really about? What's the focus? And so we, I went with three locals. One was a Christian, two were not. They were her friends. And I think that's often how ministry and evangelism happens in that space is that people, you, you can't necessarily just say, oh, hey, can I hear about Jesus? But they invite their friends to things and people do things as a community, as a collective, um, you know. And so one of those guys would drive us every week um, and then the other guy would, I mean, <laughs> They were, you know, they'd make up excuses to their bosses about what they were doing and where they were going to be and, you know, the ethics of, of, of how they made time to be there was questionable at times. But, you know, they then got swept into that and then there were beautiful conversations, you know, and, and for them, the fact that a foreigner would want to come and to be here and, it, you know, it wasn't clean, it wasn't fun, it wasn't lovely, it was, it was just really challenging for, for those two guys in particular to to not only see a mutual local friend want to go to the orphanage, but me was kind of like another layer on top of that. And so then she was able to have, you know, really deep conversations every week in the car and, and I could input into them as well, but it was really facilitating and enabling her to have those conversations. And I think a lot of the ministry we do is about that, you know, in our difference we create opportunity, we create interest, and then local people, local believers can can have those deeper conversations. It would be risky for us to to necessarily get too explicit, but we can open those doors to other people. So you're you're seeing you have having these opportunities to get into this orphanage, and what you're seeing though, even though you're kind of you're just visiting and in a sense not necessarily trying to do too much. There's not much you can do at this stage, but what you're seeing is quite confronting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these children were, you know, neglected, like they're not enough staff, not trained. And all of these kids, you know, 98% of them have disabilities. They're not actual orphans, you know, they have parents, but their parents didn't feel able. And a lot of pressure from a lot of different parts of society and from government and culture and heritage making them not only feel inadequate or unable to raise their children, but to, to genuinely, in a lot of cases, think that the state could do a better job. And so they've given their kids up with these disabilities, but the people they've been entrusted to have no training in disability. And the ideal is a silent space. If kids are seen to be crying, they're seen to be doing the wrong thing. But I mean, what we know is kids cry to communicate. And if you don't respond or aren't attuned to that, they, they stop. So you're actually seeing rooms full of kids that are not crying and that's kind of actually making you concerned. Oh, for sure. I mean, they give up. And I would have conversations with carers, you know, when a new baby was dropped off and they're 
fussing and crying. Literally, don't worry, it won't take long, they'll give up soon. So that that's the attitude. And I mean, obviously, that's very confronting and a challenge. But when your boss hears crying and tells you off for that and you get in trouble for that, then what are you going to do? So, yeah, so we, I mean, and the, a part of that river that I sort of stepped into was, um, you know, we, as foreigners, we were part of a foreign fellowship and there's a university ministry of English teachers um, there and they had local students coming to their groups who wanted to get involved in social service and that's a, a huge movement that's sweeping across that part of the world is, is a desire to engage with the vulnerable. And so those teachers, especially they were seeing people come to, to faith and wanting to them to work out what does it mean to be a Christian, how do you live that out, and how do you find opportunities to express the love of God? And so having them come to the orphanage was a really natural ministry to ta- start to develop. And so we often sort of looked at that, that ministry and just thought what, how precious that was, that the most ad- privileged and advantaged people in that society were coming to, to serve the least. And I think that then in itself was a huge witness. And lots of students would see that and want to come, that no understanding of who Jesus was at that point, but want to come. And so having a way to have them come, be local, be kids and and see the situation. You know, they're the leaders of tomorrow. They're going to make those changes. They're having that exposure and that experience, but also personally in their own journey to go, wow, God speaks into this space and into this place. I guess you must have been thinking, how can we possibly see this change? And how is God going to make a difference in these kids' lives? And how is he going to use me to do that? And how long is this going to take? What did you see? What did, what did God enable to happen in that place? So within a short period of time, those weekly visits that were, you know, we'd turn up, we wouldn't be sure if we'd be allowed in week to week. They turned into a more consistent and expected event. We got given access to bigger spaces we were allowed to bring in more resources, so therapy tools, toys, physical equipment, that kind of stuff. And we could take the kids back as well. And sometimes we could take some of the equipment back and we could show some of the carers, oh, this is how you use this. Or it'd be great if they could, you know, sit up in this bumbo for half an hour at a time, a couple of times a day. And, um, you know, you have very little impact on the, or influence on the 24 hour space but at the same time you know there are they're all human those carers are all human and and most of them have raised their own children and when they start to see there is some hope or there is a way to get a smile everybody wants to see a kid smile and so empowering them to have ways to do that you can only provide the opportunity and the information and I think for myself that that might be partly a vocational training skill, but I think as a Christian, you need to be able to hold those two things together, that, that you, are, you are not God and you are not going to change this situation ever. It doesn't matter. And even if you had all the opportunity and resources in the world, you personally can't change other people. You can only have integrity yourself. You can only provide opportunity and information and it's up to God to change the other people. And I think that's always been how I handle that confrontation of the fallenness of this world. And is that what happened? Did you see God changing other people through this, the carers particularly I'm thinking of? Yeah, totally. Totally. I think the the attitude of wariness, suspicion and fear that we were going to make life hard, that we were going to make things difficult and to a more of an openness and a, oh, these people are okay and it'll be all right. Definitely for sure. And then, you know, over time, seeing that be able to expand a little bit, but really it just, it was years just plodding along at that level at a weekly visit. And the real change came in 2013 where, 2013, yeah, 2013, we had come back from having a baby and the kids that and you I got had married been, too in the time. Oh yeah, I got, <laughs> you got married. Yeah, got married. That was the second baby, I think. Oh, must have been the third one. But anyway, <laughs> 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 uh, lose track. Um, 
Now I'm trying to work out the math. But anyway, but anyway, 2000, end of 2013, we would have had our third child by then. So we were back and um, I had been working with the eight-year-olds and above. So a lot of our volunteers very keen and excited to go cuddle a baby and, and have that sort of time. But the, the older kids are a little harder and um, their hygiene issues are a little more difficult to deal with. And so my team for that age group was always smaller than, than the team going to the babies. But anyway, they had moved. They'd been put down to a back, back end of the orphanage. And so we found them and originally we were told, no, you, you can only keep going to the main building. But we just kept asking after kids and getting annoying in that sense, but also just being like, we're just going to play with them. We're just going to do the same thing we used to do, but just where they are. Anyway, we we found them and um, we just very quietly and <laughs> respectfully just started visiting them. What that did, so even though that was from outside a bad thing that they'd be moved away from the centre of things, it put us near some kids, the details of this is, is it was a hangover. There were some older children there that my colleague M, sorry, my colleague now, local person M, at that time we didn't know each other, but she, with another organisation, had responsibility for babies with certain disabilities who could be adopted out. And so she was heading up that that work there. Anyway, she had connection with some older kids who were near the kids I was visiting and she would see us come and play with them each week and eventually after a number of months I mean she's just such a beautiful person she just yeah she came up to me and she said you know I can see you really care about these kids like most people just want to see the babies who are clean and cute and smile but you are coming week after week to these children that are just you know it just seems so hopeless. And she said, and I, I really care for these children too and I want to do something. Do you think we could do something together? Well, in our organisation there, we can't do anything unless we have a local person who wants to spearhead it. And, and that was, you know, you say about seeing the work grow. The, the main reason it hadn't grown was because we didn't have a local person with a connection to make it grow that we could partner with. And and for whatever reason, right then, the timing God brought about for this non-Christian lady to come and approach me and say, you know, I want to work with you. I can see that you are genuine. A lot of people just come for a week and disappear or whatever, but you've, you've been here for a long time, you know, and, um, and not just me, obviously, other people from my organisation, she'd seen that they had been faithful as well. So I rushed back to our leadership and just sort of said, I think... I think we've got someone. Like I think we I think God is answering these decades of prayers. And so we put together a proposal. Uh she didn't have any background in how to start a program. So she had she had definitely grown a program before, but had been given the the structure. So when I had been back in Australia, I'd done my master's in disability studies because obviously I, when I'd got there I'd realized they're not all baby girls. They all have disabilities. I need to be able to understand how to meet that need and in that I had you know looked at the history of of care for for kids with disability and and what is important in different programs and what to have so we put that proposal together then we took it to the director of the orphanage and that was one of the craziest meetings ever and I guess just another insight into both having to acknowledge that your culture makes you completely blind and you understand absolutely nothing but also that you can provide opportunities as a foreigner, that you you bring something that isn't already there. And so we went into the meeting. We had to wait. We waited, I don't know, over an hour in the office. We watched people go in and out. I mean, maybe even more than an hour. The smoke was incredible. We're just sitting there waiting. I've got this proposal in my hands that we've worked really hard um, to, to write and then translate. And uh, finally we get to go in and we're sitting there. And uh, M, you know, director would ask a question, I'd answer, or M would answer, and I'd be like edging to try and say, "Oh, so here's the proposal." And every time I do it, M would just put a hand on my arm or my leg and just be like, mm, "Not yet." And um, <laughs> just then I was, "Oh, okay." And just you know, I mean, it's an hour, an hour and a half of sitting in this room, and he's chain smoking, and his two ICs chain smoking, and I'm dying of asthma. 
And, and M is just still saying no, no, like not out loud, but it's clear it's not the time. He's asking me about my family. He's asking me about why I'm here. He's asking me about Australia. Oh, I mean, it just was uh, so maddening. And um, eventually then he, he said something about having someone, another appointment he had to go to. And I'm sitting there freaking out thinking, we've come all this way, like we've done all this work. When are we going to do this? And, um, and so then, and at that point, M, you know, stood up and she said, you know, thank you so much for your time. Just if you're interested, we have this proposal, if you, if you have time to have a look at it. And at that point, he looked right at me and he said in, in the local language, you know, yes, I have time to read this. And we left. And I said to Emma, I said, what? That was the biggest waste of time. <laughs> like, <laughs> and she was like, no, he, I was like, did he even know when we were there? Like, why were we there? And uh, she said, of course he knew why we were there. Like, she'd had meetings before, prepping, explaining paving the way. And she said, no, no, that, that was fabulous. Didn't you hear what he said? And I was like, no, I didn't clearly not hear what was in, essential in that conversation. And she said, he said, he's got time. He's going to read it. And I was like, what? And she said, he was, he was testing you. Like he was getting to know who you are. He wanted to see what your ambitions were whether you were going to be respectful, whether you were going to be hard to work with, whether you were going to be more trouble than you're worth. And, and what he saw was he's got time. He's going to read it. And, and sure enough, within a couple of months, we had, we got fobbed off and fobbed off. And then eventually it was a dramatic yes. And we had this really tight turnaround to take over a space and make it happen. And that's where you see the connections of the, our organisation, of M of all the local people coming together. And it was just incredible. So paint us the picture of what that yes then enabled and enacted. So the first step was we were given care of 22 kids. We were given, what was it? It was a corner room. I'm trying to think exactly how many rooms it was, maybe 10 rooms. So what we did, so the kids had been sleeping 10 to a bed with two carers for those 20 children. And those two carers also had to oversee laundry meals and, and other things. They didn't have to do the cooking, but they had to make all of that happen. So, and they would be on their phones a lot of the time. So we changed that. We put in a model of care where one carer looked after three children and it was the same three children. So they then became live, on, live in. They would get, you know, a certain number of weeks of holiday a year and, and that sort of thing, but they lived on site to help with attachment building with the with the kids and so they had one carer for the same three children and then from there then we also created different play spaces and and daily activity rooms and and then that grew where as things worked out we were given you know another storeroom or you know em would go in and say this is really cramped come and have a look like we really would like this space and so all of a sudden miraculously the stuff that had been unable to be moved from that room could be moved and so and then we were able to put in a playground with a, you know, with a fence and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then we were able to arrange to have foreign experts come to do training. So then we started a biannual training session for two weeks where we would have speech pathologists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, sometimes we had behavioural therapists come and they would, we, we started, we put in place independent learning plans for every child and then we would use something called gas, like goal attainment scale to measure their progress. So we got some baseline data for each of the kids, set their specific goals that they were working on. And so each of the specialists, you know, would, would say, okay, they can currently take two steps unassisted or they can currently sit up and, you know, and so then what would be a plus one? What would be a plus two? What would excel our expectations? You know, unfortunately, we had only biannual, so we could only do those that, those checkups every every six months. But um, we did that, so we would have them come for two weeks. We would have bring in extra helpers. Our team was growing over that time, and so we would have a translator for each therapist, and then we would work individually with those kids. And then we would train the carers as we went as to how to implement those learning plans for each child. And then in the months following, you know, if we had questions or refinement to make, the therapists were very generous with their time. We could email with them and stuff. Sometimes we would do 
like a Zoom consult if we had an intake. But we, in our team, we generally, and, and, and one of the things that I would get involved with was an initial assessment. So after a few years, you know, you have a general field of, of what those different areas look like. You can judge where a child is up to and, and put in place a temporary plan and then that would get firmed up once the specialists came. So there was that, and then we and we would do the trainings with the carers, and then we would be able to eventually able to come in as foreigners twice a week. And M was able to be there; she was the manager, so she was there every day. We grew our team for that, so we were responsible. Then eventually, that was so successful us for just six months. We were asked to expand it, so we doubled the size of more than doubled the size of the program, and and took over more space for the kids. And then eventually, we were able to start a palliative care area. For, for children that we knew they wouldn't be able to work on these plans, you know, in the same way. And we trained up a couple of nurses to work specific carers to, to work specifically with those kids and give them the level of care they needed, obviously quite different. And then we also started an independent living centre for, we had four older kids at that time, teaching them independent living skills. So how to wash their dishes, how to do their washing. They had their own little laundry in their area. So we d- redeveloped um, three rooms to to make that work. And they, you know, started to do some, they had some job skill training from one of our team members was OT. She taught them different skills, making bead bracelets and things like that. And so then they could have a little bit of an income for themselves. So it just really sort of snowballed from there. At the, the project proposal had always been for a five-year stint, and then we would hand over back to local leadership. We took an extra year to to do that handover and just before COVID hit, we had been moving towards them taking back responsibility and we had a really nice sort of supported handover plan in place and agreement that we would continue to do that biannual training and weekly visits, but COVID obviously put an end to that. M two months ago was able to start visiting again. So pretty much since end of 2019 till now, no regular visits have been possible. So she's just started going back. And when I get back, we're hoping, you know, over time, the doors will open. We'll come back to COVID in that period in a minute. One other thing I wanted to, well, two other things I wanted to cover. The first was the, that, the whole idea of being able to provide long-term homes for these orphans. That was obviously on your mind. Yeah. So we were given care of the kids that were basically seen as unadoptable, unfosterable, uneducatable. And, you know, we're really proud that over that period of time, I think the, it's had 11 kids adopted and two actually have parents waiting to come and get them. They haven't been able to get in country for the last um, four years. And I mean, dozens of kids put into foster care because they have these plans and we can train the foster families in how to look after them. And, you know, there's complicated supervision that goes on with that as well. But, and in terms of education, we really advocated for a a school to be set up in the space and for certain ones of our kids to be able to go. Over that time, the government's policy towards kids with disability and education changed. And so our orphanage was then seen sort of at the forefront of that. And they got a lot of praise for for their efforts, which was, you know, nice because Everybody knew that we'd have <laughs> helped we'd advocate help. for that yeah. to happen. And I, I mean, there's just some momentum there. Sometimes you never really can unravel all the different strands that go towards something happening. And God knows, so you don't really need to make sure you've identified all of it. But yeah, I mean, there's a school there we continued to advocate for. Certain ones of our kids, you know, the selection for who gets to go to school is basically who's ambulant and considered a desk as opposed to who you know, intellectually is going to really thrive from that stimulation. So uh, that's an ongoing process. But yeah, it's been good to see kids get permanent homes. That's not going to be the future for a lot of them. So working hard to raise the standard of care in their home is equally important. The other question I wanted to ask you before we came to COVID and, and your current situation is what happened to M through all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, I love looking at our team because you just see God at work so enormously. Um, When Em eventually came to work for our organisation and and part of our expectation is that we all do a weekly Bible study together. So she came and it it would have been a year, more than a year that she was just sort of enduring it and tolerating it. Uh, And then one day she 
in that, you know, we were saying, oh, you know, how does this apply or whatever? And she said, oh, well, we as Christians, you know, blah, 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 blah. So afterwards I said to her, you know, you said for the first time we as Christians. Yeah. And she said, yeah, I, I think I've, I reckon Jesus is, is real. Like I, you know, and so we went through two ways to live just to, for my own Western concern to make sure that she actually Tick knew what she was saying yeah. yes to. You yeah. can be sure that when she went through Sorry. the baptismal process uh, with her local church, it was more rigorous than that. But yeah, that was a really exciting day just to pray the prayer with her and kind of in my mind lock that in. But just to watch her grow from then has been astounding and, and just those different aha moments. And that's the beauty of doing working somewhere long term and really journeying with people as your friends is that you you get to see that unfold and the spirit work and shine light in different areas. But but on our team, you know, there was Hannah, so she had a Catholic background. She in our so in our team meetings on site, we would always do a, a time of prayer, like we'd do an update and then we'd go around and pray. She would start, she started, I don't even know, maybe the first few months she wouldn't pray, just was beyond her experience to pray in public or out loud. Then she wrote a prayer on her phone and she would read it word for word. It was a real like, you know, like from the prayer book type of prayer. And um, I still remember the first day that she didn't use her phone and she started her prayer with Father, you know, we want to, asked that you would do whatever it was, but she started with father and um, not the formal term for God. It was just a beautiful moment. So watching her grow. Uh, and then another another one of our key members, she was from a more sort of, I guess we'd call it a penty background, a little bit more free church. I, I don't, that's probably a technical term, but it may not apply there. But she you know, she was all about all about the feelings and in tears most of the time, like seeing what she was seeing and everything and um, just watching her mature and grow and know that there's real content to the gospel and there's real action that comes out of the gospel. Uh, and, and also she was really great at working out how to have activities that would foster gospel conversations with the kids or songs that would have a gospel element. You know, because we have to be very careful about how we do those things, but it can be done. Okay. So I guess the last four years or so has been quite different. And yeah, you mentioned COVID and you've been out of country for that length of time. You've been here in Adelaide and you've spent a whole bunch of time with your family and you've got involved in a, a different kind of work while you've been, I guess, waiting for the, the visa question. And that's been a, a long-term question. And the work you've been doing has been with, I, I guess, uh, children with, well, it's really with parents on this this side, hasn't it? Just give us a quick summary of some of the work you've been doing with the Riley Foundation here in Adelaide. Yeah, so we work with, it's a, it can be a little controversial for people, but we work with parents who've had their kids removed by DCP. And so those parents are, are typically coming from very vulnerable, disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think without knowing it, I had really wanted to do work that was meaningful, but really didn't want to do work that lined up too much with where my heart beat the strongest. We didn't want to put down roots here in Adelaide. And I think if I had got involved in work that was directly with children, that would have been too much of a chat, like too much of a competition or a challenge when the time hopefully came to be able to go. So God really answered um, our prayers in terms of, of providing that work because my passion is to work with kids from hard places, but, you know, I think biological parents are, they're just so, I mean, that, I don't, I, there's not time in this podcast to um, explore all those details. You know, we live in a fallen world and the most important thing is that kids are safe. So there's absolutely never any question of, of compromising that, but being able to have a biological parent involved positively and productively in their child's life even if that's not in the same house, but empowering those parents to, to parent, to be, to help build their child, to be the person God wants them to be. You know, if you, if you can turn that situation around a bit, I, I found that um, really special to be involved in that. And the Riley Foundation um, is unique in that space and it's providing a service of, of partnering with parents, helping them understand how to navigate the system and understand the system. 
you know, it's like they're speaking another language. And so being able to translate and interpret that and break that down and say, this is what's really happening. And this, this isn't this, you have to make these changes or you need to listen to this. So it's a, it's a really powerful work. And, um, yeah, Nadia, my boss, she's got an amazing vision for that and being able to support and encourage her in that work is, yeah, has been a real privilege. How has God worked in your heart over this this time while you've been here in Adelaide? I guess not trying to put down too deep roots. You've had in mind that you'd go back and yet that hasn't been possible until now. How are you different now to four years ago? And, how, and as you engage in the idea of um, going back on mission to Asia, what's that going to look like? Yeah, how am I different? I don't know. You kind of probably need to get D in here to... <laughs> to answer that question. You know, we I've been studying pretty much the whole time we've been here. I think one of the real gaps I've seen in my abilities in Asia is, you know, when kids start to wrestle with the fact that they've been abandoned, there's real devastating identity questions that go on with that. Um, and I guess that feeds into my passion for the Riley Foundation too. But um, so I've been studying psychology while we've been here. Um, that's put a huge load on our family. Like that, that takes up every nook and cranny of spare time that that there was. So I guess in a way, how am I different? I I have a fresh appreciation that I am a bit of a workaholic, and it's easy to. Um, that's always for a good cause, you know. So I think being able to identify that and to work out how to manage that in a way that honours my family better, I think being here in Australia has given me space to do that and perspective, a little bit more objectivity because when we're in Asia, there's no question that a child with no kid, with no parents, you know, neglected, like we're all as a family going to make that a priority. But what does that mean for us as a family to be doing that constantly? And so me still being me here, uh, but in a different context has enabled me to reflect on that. And, and Dee's been really supportive in that, I think, and to try and put in some better strategies and, and just mindfulness and awareness around that as we head back, I think I'll be in a stronger and more sustainable space to do that. So I guess I'm a bit different on that front. It's funny for me, we have made friends here that, you know, now that we're talking about going back, are like, oh, you, you know, I didn't know you were into that sort of thing. And you're like, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and then also supporters that are, you know, like, oh, you're still hoping to do that. And mm. I guess I find that really confronting to reflect on because I, I guess a way I've coped over this last four years is to compartmentalise and to, um, you know, I, like I've said, I'm a boots and all. I am where I am. I'm very present where I am. And I've endeavoured to do that. I think we were very aware from the start that, God is either so, of this four-year period that God is either sovereign or he isn't. And if he is, he has things for us to do here where we are. And so we tried to have really open hands and to look for what he had for us in this place and how we could serve him. And I, I hope that we've been faithful in that. But I think the the confronting thing for me now as I process going back and I have those responses is to 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 be what does that mean that there are people that don't know how important and and that part of who I am? I think I've done that as a survival thing to cope, but yeah, so it's it challenges me like how how have I failed in that in some level have and I do struggle with sense of betrayal through this time we We haven't been able to have regular contact. We were asked not to have regular contact because of security reasons, and I think certainly early on you know, we, we would cry most days because we just felt that the rug had been pulled right out from under us and we had no way of continuing that connection. Yeah. And, 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 and then the, the level at which you could have that connection just seemed like such fairy floss that it just was more painful to, to poke in those areas and not be able to respond. So, you know, that's been, it's been a difficult four years in that sense and just having to keep coming back to God and knowing that he understands in your in my weakness it's too much you know it's too it's too much to hold all of those things in front of you all the time um but yeah it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting time 
dependence on God as you uh, look at this this new hill to climb and and the the, the kind of resharing the vision of what you're doing. Mm. Look, one final question: What would you want to say to the person who is, you know, back where you were when you were kind of thinking about whether to go overseas? Now, you know, maybe this person that you're talking to already has that niggling idea in their head. What would you say to them about how to journey forward on that that niggle? Yeah, what's your advice to them? I think I'd just say, why not? Honestly, like. People often say, oh, why should I do mission? Why should I go overseas? I, I, I just think that's wrong-headed. Like Jesus made it clear, all nations, everyone, the whole lot, everybody. So I, I think the better question is the one I was asked, which is why not? Well, and I wasn't actually asked. I guess I was asked it in my head. I guess that maybe it was God. But, like, mm. you know, why not? Like why, why not go? What You know, we're so privileged and, and, you know, people would say to us, you know, and especially with D, even now, you know, like you're doing good work, you're involved in the church, like, you know, why why leave that? Like it's an important ministry. It's like, well, you know, I mean, he is amazing and he is doing great stuff and he brings unique skills to the table. And But at the same time, when he steps down, there's 10 people waiting for that job, you know, with, whereas in the place we're hoping to return to that, it's not that, you know. And there's just such opportunity there that is not being taken up and you can be a part of that. I, I, yeah, I think you've got one life, you know, like make it count, make it count. T, it's been a delight. I won't show you how long the list is of questions I still haven't asked you, but uh, <laughs> because there is a lot more I'd love to, to ask about, but we, yeah, very appreciative for the long period that you've spent in Asia and for, and thankful to God that he is nudging you and enabling you and your family to return. And our prayer is that that return would be trouble-free and that you'd be able, or at least that you'd be able to get there without any more hindrances. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing. All these stories have been really gripping. We're very appreciative of that. Um, we will keep praying. Thank you for being on the Heart of Mission podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on the Heart of Mission podcast. What small role can you be playing in God's big plans? To find out more about CMS and opportunities that might be there for you, search us on the web to find your local branch and local social media channels. CMS is a fellowship of Christian people and churches committed to global mission. We work together to set apart long-term workers who cross cultures to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for a world that knows Jesus. See you next time.